Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Muckrake Podcast. I'm Jared Yates Sexton. Voice 100%. Ready to go. No more excuses. I'm here with Nick Houseman. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing pretty well. Just, uh, you know, fresh off a Warner Brothers tour, seeing all the behind-the-scenes stuff at, uh, on Hollywood. There you go. Hollywood, Nick Houseman with us as always uh we're going to be joined in a little bit by dr diana butler bass who is one of my favorite uh religious scholars we're going to talk about evangelical extremism and the authoritarian movement developing behind it but first I think I'm partial to the the Beatles version in myself. I, I mean, listen, it's a rousing anthem. Let's just say that the horns, the 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 bursting out of song, it's a rousing anthem. Oh yeah, I'm not sure how anybody even like that. That seems like a really difficult song to master and learn and everything. Has to be. Uh, so let's go from the heights of democracy and inspiration. Uh, to the election in France that was just held. Um, I did I did a segment on this for the weekender a couple of weeks ago, and I got to tell you, Nick, what I was worried about happening has uh, has happened. Uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, came through in the initial round with twenty seven point eight percent, and Marine Le Pen, uh, racist, xenophobic, nationalistic, authoritarian came in with 23.2%, which means that Macron and Le Pen are heading towards a runoff. Uh, where that goes is anybody's guess. Um, it, it's it's terrible. It's just a bad situation. The, the funny thing is, is that this this um, process they do, where if you don't get 50%, you have to do a runoff, was supposed to, I believe, like eliminate the possibility of like radical crazies getting into this race and actually winning. And and yet here we are. Uh, for for whatever it's worth, the per, the, the third place got twenty percent or something. That person is really telling everybody they have to vote for Macron. So it's not like a Bernie Sanders thing where he would finally say, "Okay, vote for Hillary" or whatever. Uh, he's he's turning on everyone that vote for Macron, but it doesn't seem like it's going to have as big an effect as people would hope. Well, first of all, Bernie Sanders told everybody to go ahead and vote. Oh, for I'm him. sorry. All right, forget. But, I don't but, throw but shit second of all, we we got to talk very quickly about Jean Luc Mélenchon. Okay. Uh, who who is a uh, left wing socialist Democrat candidate who came in with 22 percent of the vote. What we have now running into this and, and I promise, by the way, I know that we have a bunch of Francophiles who are listening who are like, yes, the Muckrake podcast is finally spending serious minutes talking about French national politics. I promise for everybody else, we're bringing this back around to an American viewpoint and lens american culture head cultural hegemony forever stars and stripes french fries but what we are looking at right now is the fact that in this runoff we are now potentially looking at one of the major western powers possibly going under the leadership of Marine Le Pen, who comes from the family of Le Pens, who are nationalistic, xenophobic, racist, sexist, you name it, uh, there is a very real possibility at this point, depending upon uh, what turnout is, how the campaign over the next couple of weeks goes, this is a lot like the Trump election of 2016. 
very, very much like this. And another reminder that this authoritarian wave that is building that you and I spend so much time talking about and documenting and researching that it could potentially uh, take another election. What's interesting, though, is that the uh, the, the difference between 2016 and, and what we're doing now is that uh, Macron is a incumbent, come, you know, who's already had a record and now he's running on. And it's fascinating that he came in as this young, good-looking leader who, you know, probably was treated like Trudeau. Like, no one knew much about him, and they just felt like, well, he just kind of looks the party saying a lot of the great stuff and, and the good stuff that's very progressive. But, man, what, nope. what happens when you get in behind, you know, into the into – the, what's the – I don't know the equivalent of the White Houses in, in, in Paris or in France, but whatever. Well, when you get in power – The Lucide, whatever, anyway. <laughs> it turns out that when you get in power, when you're Emmanuel Macron – and by the way, for the record – not a fan of Emmanuel Macron at all. I, I, I think he sucks, and I think he's a big part of the reason why we're in this situation. We'll, we'll talk about what has happened and how we've even gotten to the point where Marine Le Pen could be within a, a, a breath of gaining the presidency of France and potentially changing the balance of power in the West, but we'll get to that in a minute. Macron comes in. He's a neoliberal, first and foremost. Second of all, his main constituency are the wealthy bourgeois French citizens. As a result, what is he for? Of course, he's for free markets. Of course, he's for raising the retirement age. But also, what did he do? He looked at what was happening in France and what was happening within the West as this Islamophobia started to, to take hold. He came out and started targeting Islamic people. He started going after Muslims. He started saying, you know, we really need to combat Islamist separation. And what happens, Nick, when neoliberals start dipping their toes into this water? It moves the country in a direction and it makes room for people like Marine Le Pen. You know, what's a little bit refreshing, I'm trying to look through it and I, I didn't really see a lot of evidence from Le Pen was you would think she'd follow the Trump um, playbook, which would be already setting up the notion that this is a rigged election. And at the very least, right, I don't think, have you seen anything about that and her out loud saying that and trying to, to, uh, to prep, uh, prep everybody for this? The right wing media in France feels a lot. Well, actually, so like much of the mainstream media in France is also pushing this type of stuff because it's the same corporatist sort of idea. Right. That it has been floated out there, the possibility that the election could be stolen, but it's not that same route at this point. Like right. it has not embraced that in the same way. You've seen it in America. You've seen it, of course, in Hungary like that. That has not necessarily taken root yet. But there's two weeks. So yeah. who knows? And, and if it's close, I have no doubt Then you know, once the elections come in and with the one or two points, I'm sure that that will come out. Someone will start arguing that. Um, and that's another issue. But, yeah, the, it's fascinating to me to, to see a guy like Macron go from, you know, the, you know the, such a progressive figure to, you know, changing the, the wealth tax to basically changing the tax structure exactly what yep. Trump did and completely yep. benefited the wealthy, which, you know, is generally doesn't go over well when you're trying to win a national election anywhere. Right. And uh, and I think that that was a, that was a weird one for him. And then, yes, to, to even pivot slightly on immigration, uh, which is what he's done. And, and obviously he's reading the tea leaves and he sees there must be some opening there where he needs to criticize Muslims from coming into the country. And that will somehow get him some extra votes. I, it's unclear to me why that is, but that's that he must have made a calculation. Well, so let's talk about that calculation and let's bring it back to the USA number one, baby. Stars and stripes. Oh, equals oh wait, I don't have the national an our national anthem queued up. Should I? Don't okay. don't do it. It, it pales. <laughs> it right. pales in comparison. Right. I got to tell you, the calculation is this. 
neoliberals when they are figuring out how to put themselves within the political spectrum. They have to make choices. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, neoliberals like to say the right thing. They like to talk about, you know, people lifting themselves up and making things fairer. And they like to say the uh, the socially acceptable catchphrases, right? They like to come out and they like to hug people, kiss babies, you know, make a big show out of all this. Well, guess what? We're reaching a crisis and neoliberals have a choice to make. And, and I don't know if you've noticed this. I assume our listeners have noticed this. In the past few weeks, as it's becoming alarmingly clear that the Democrats are going to get absolutely washed in the midterms and the possibility that the Republicans might also take the, the national election in 2024, all of a sudden now, Nick, if you just train your ears outside, you can just hear the moderates and the, the neoliberals compromise move towards the center we're too far left and why because they have no interest in talking about redistribution of wealth they have no interest in talking about democracy and what happens is that neoliberals start showing the secret face of neoliberalism which is when their money and their power and their affluence is possibly tested they go right because the, the, the those people and the neo-fascists have a lot in common Yes, well said. Uh, and it's, yeah, basically, what can I do to survive? Tell yep. me what yep. I have to say. Please do the research. And then I'll say it. And it doesn't matter if it completely disagrees with what I had run on the, the past four years. And I think that's the sad part about the situation is that you could win again having flipped a lot of your key positions from the first time you won. And, you know, just because things change or some other people come out. Why is it? Why... Having seen so many votes for, for uh, Biden, and I know the Electoral College is a lot different than, or, or local politics is a little different than, than you know, uh, national. But why is it that we have to s swallow this notion that the Democrats are going to lose in a landslide? Why can't it be somebody rallying around or everyone rallying around like we see how dangerous this is now and, and, and come out for the fucking midterms? Man, it would be great if they had some sort of a message that would rouse that. I mean, I mean, really, it would it would be really, really wonderful. But the 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 answers that have gotten us there. I mean, we're not talking about the corporations that are chiseling away at our rights. We're not talking about these extremist movements. Every time it's just like, ah, don't worry, they'll come back around. The Republicans will figure it out. They'll snap out of their daydream. In this case, you want to go over to France, look at Macron. Macron is competing with one of the furthest right candidates in France history to take the right. That's literally the mindset. They want to constantly chisel away at the right because the left is just such a third rail for them. They couldn't even possibly start having conversations about it. Biden started, Biden has started kind of flirting with this nascent union organizing movement, but I haven't seen anything that actually supports it outside of rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen any conversation about why Build Back Better got stalled. I haven't seen any actual movement to try and make sure that people aren't being disenfranchised. And a large part of it is fear of being seen as going too far left. And the moment you're seen as being gone too far left, you're seen as dangerous. There, right. there, there must be a formula that maybe you've seen having sure. studied so many different historical eras of, of politics. There's a formula, right? A after X amount of time of progressivism in politics, 
it, it like, you know, X amount of years, it, it, people simply bend back the other way, almost like a violin string when you pluck it or something, right? Like, I can't fathom anything else besides the fact that, like, we're, we've won so many of these things. We've won Roe v. Wade, gay marriage, all these important, you know, milestones of, of to, to make things more fair for people. And yet, it doesn't seem like that's popular anymore, right? You can, like, can any Democratic, uh, you know, candidate win on saying I'm going to protect Roe v. Wade? Uh, I mean, that's one way to fundraise. Okay. I mean, you know, basically, like, and 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 this this gets back a lot to the the tactics that you and I have talked about. It's like some Democrats are so excited when Roe v. Wade is under attack, so they can go and send out their emails. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it it gives them something to say. Like, it gives people a reason to go out. But I do have a question for you on this, and this is one of the things that I wanted to talk about today, and I want our listenership to think about as well. So, okay, let's take Macron in France, right? And Macron, by the way, has consolidated power. He is just sick. He is sicked French police on citizens left and right. I mean, that is a that is a neoliberal sort of corporate paradise at this moment. So I got to tell you, I do not want Marine Le Pen to win the presidency. Marine Le Pen is a devilish, racist, authoritarian person. By the way, where does she get her money from? Her supporters, but also Hungary and Russia. Mm -hmm. I'm just putting this into context because this is a larger conversation we wait, have. To wait, wait. There was a great picture she was going to release with her and Putin up until oh, sure. Ukraine uh, they were, it was invaded. Like They were all set to use the Putin connection as a good thing for her. Oh, and by the way, let's also not forget to mention that Macron having all these calls with Putin, trying to bring an end to the war, pictures of him on the phone with Putin, that was trying to appeal to the same people. I can talk to Putin. Don't worry, you can get your French nationalist light brand over here with Macron. So here's the thing, Nick. I don't want I, I, I don't want Macron to be the president of France. I sure shit don't want Marine Le Pen to be the, the, the president of France. How do you, and, and I have my thoughts on this, but I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about it. Like if Macron wins, or let's just actually, let's throw out France, let's throw out America, let's take country X, right? Country X has a presidential battle between a neoliberal who's a status quo or who might say the right things, but don't, things don't necessarily change. And you have a fire breathing right wing authoritarian candidate that they're running against. You don't want the fire breathing authoritarian right wing candidate to win. But also, if we keep electing that neoliberal centrist third way austerity corporate person, Things are going to continue to get worse, and there's going to be more and more potential for that fire-breathing right-wing person to win elections and gain power. How do you square that in your head? Because I think this is one of the bigger questions of our moment. I mean, my first instinct is to say, yeah, you know, you'd never vote for that right-wing crazy. You can't vote for that person. I Absolutely agree. not. Now, no. you know, but, but it gives you a little insight into why, like, somebody might want Trump because yep. they want to tear it all down. And like, yep. if we tear it all down, it'll just shake the system up. And then, then we'll see. Maybe things will shake out better after that. Uh, you know, it never does, right? Those are all just, it just continues down an authoritarian path. But um, I, I hear you, man. This is when you get to those no, really annoying conversations with people about how, oh, they're both terrible. You know, I think, right? Because Macron, like, I mean, at least if we're going to do the Democrats and Republicans, the Democrats are not like terrible, like you're not like the Republicans are, right? This is not a uh, equal equal discussion. 
Um, and then with Macron and Le Pen, I mean, seriously, there's no way to put Macron on the same level as Le Pen. There's no way, like, you know, but I, it's, it's interesting, but I think that, you know, you do, you want to take the emotion out of it and simply say, we cannot have that person. So we have to vote for the neoliberal. You have to, I, I, th I agree that you have to, the thing that frightens me. And by the way, like, you know, one thing that we've completely paved over Jean-Luc Mélenchon got 22% of the vote which was only a uh, 1.2% behind Marine Le Pen and only five points behind Macron. That is a socialist democratic candidate who, by the way, like you want to talk about how weird politics are getting. Like he's, he's anti-European union. He doesn't care for NATO all that much. Like that's how weird all this movement has become. So in the midst of all of this, the question now is, we can't just abandon these countries and hand them over to aspiring fascists. We can't do that because I have to tell you, like, let's say America goes down the path that you and I are talking about right now. All of a sudden we're talking about Russia, Hungary, uh, France, the United States, all of these countries starting to be run by strong, strong men. Right. Like we're talking about like authoritarian people who, by the way, hate hate liberal democracy. That's what all this is about. Like literally the, 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 the ideology here is that not everybody deserves the same rights. Not everybody deserves the same protections. And by the way, when all of a sudden, uh, you know, the waters start rising and we start losing land and resources, someone has to pick out who suffers. And that's where this is moving, right? We cannot simply abandon it to these people. But it's really hard to start wrapping my head around what sort of um, – I want to say revolutionary, but what sort of a malleable moment could possibly come that might move things in another direction? Because between neoliberals, third wayers and these authoritarians, it feels like we are on a trajectory for for basically all of the established sort of countries and regimes to start going this route. Well, you, you might remember the last time France was in a situation where they radically changed the way their country is governed and people were getting their heads chopped off. and whatnot. Well, the last time technically was when they, they let the Nazis come in. Uh, Oh, okay, right. The well, when, well, actually, let me say this. A, a few French people let the Nazis come in, and it was the ideological forebearers to people like Marine Le Pen. They called it a wonderful surprise. Vichy France couldn't ask for anything better. But the time before that, the heads were rolling down the street. Yeah, and it's weird because to me, the, you know, France has always been this like com completely – you know, liberal country and very progressive and open, right? And yeah. reality, it's probably only that way in my mind because they don't have any as many sexual hangups, right? Like I almost feel like that's the difference here. It's like we we envision that about France, and they must be, you know, really progressive then, obviously, right? But but but, the, but here's the here's like one. <laughs> <laughs> There's a turn for you. I'm so sorry that I just <laughs> I love that you just did the one for one in your mind, and that's why you saw France as liberal. That's wonderful. Well, I, I do have to say, though, <laughs> this is about liberalism. And whenever we say liberalism, the thing that comes to mind in America's mind is leftist. Right. People on the left. of this, That's not true. Liberals are people based on and we're going to talk to Dr. Bass here in a minute about this. This is based on this revolutionary idea that particularly takes hold in the 18th century in the United States and within France. Right. It's the idea that capitalism is now going to be sort of the main uh, factor. Law is going to take the place of God in determining our relationships between each other. But I have to tell you, there are a lot of liberals 
who are totally fine with authoritarian circumstances, as long as it protects their money, their property, their place in society. France has been so incredibly imperialistic and racist, and the the stuff that they have pulled since uh, they they kicked the the Nazis out of France. I mean, they, they're they've been at the forefront of some of the the worst indignities that have been placed upon uh, uh, women, immigrants, people of color, uh, vulnerable minorities. And this right now is just that sort of coming to the surface. Oh, I mean, I thought you were almost getting into like the Napoleon era where of imperialism, where, you know, having to come out of uh, a monarchy and rejecting that and then going into Napole- Napoleon ruling, uh, that that's kind of an interesting background as well. Of Like they never really did get where they, I guess, hoped to get to after the revolution. No, they didn't. And and basically Napoleon came along and was like, your revolution is over. I'm now in charge and I'm now the new emperor. But one of the things that you've seen now, I mean, people like Le Pen, they're interested in rolling back. And by the way, Viktor Orban and Vladimir Putin, all of these people, they're interested in rolling times back before the king's head was chopped off. That's mm-hmm. what they're interested in. They literally want to get back to a hierarchical moment where they have control. Nobody can vote them out of office. Nobody could possibly ever interrupt them gaining more profit and more power. Like it literally is a rolling back of of liberalism and liberal democracy and that revolution that unseated hierarchical uh, uh, hereditary power. That's what they're interested in. Uh, and I just had a vision of a fourth grade uh, history teacher, a social studies teacher, you know, showing like here's Napoleon and he was very imperialistic and bad. He wanted to take over countries. That's wrong class, right? Because in America, we have everyone's fair. like, I almost feel like if that happened now, you'd have parents coming in and complaining about, you know, how dare you, you, you say someone who's like a strong leader is bad and we can't, you know, propagate that. And, and you know, which, by the way, will tie exactly into what we're going to talk about with the evangelicals in a minute. Um, that is the interesting thing that um, is fascinating to me. And what we're going through in this country is that it seems like. If we're already going to want to rewrite the slavery in this country, then it makes sense that we want to almost rewrite, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, free and fair and, 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 you know, a land of opportunity. Well, so I again and and we're going to talk to Dr. Bass about uh, apocalypticism here in a minute. I got to tell you, when when the climate catastrophe hits and by the way, when the economic bust happens and, and it's just over over the, the horizon, when all of that stuff starts happening, Nick, you have to figure out a way to keep a semblance of a system going. You know what I mean? You have to, people still got to go to work. There's not enough money or resources to give them, but they need to go to work. Well, once you start rolling back liberalism, which is an extension of capitalism, what what's before that? It's slavery. It's literally slavery. It's the idea that some people are going to live comfortably and some people, their bodies are going to be sacrificed for the well-being of the people who are living comfortable and the system that they, they are controlling and overseeing. These people are telling you constantly that there are some people who are created better than others through religion, through Christianity, through whatever you want to call it. They are saying that white people, particularly white men, were created to rule over everybody else. That ideology, like, was always in the system. It was always right underneath the surface. But there was kind of enough stuff to go around. 
You know what I mean? Like, they, like you could pretend like the system worked and everybody could sort of have rights or whatever. What we're preparing for right now and what we're seeing with results like this and what we've seen in America over the past couple of years is a preparation for what happens when the shit hits the fan and we have to figure out a way to make the system work. Who are the people who are going to be comfortable and who are the people that are going to be worked to death? All right. On that note, we're going to go and have a conversation with Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. We'll be right back in just a second. All right, everybody, as promised, a really special treat today is we have Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, who is a religious commentator and author, holds a doctorate in religious studies from Duke University and has published in such places as the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, and is the author of the new book, Freeing Jesus. Thank you so much for coming on here. I really appreciate being on, Jared. I have loved your work over the years, and I'm glad that we've gotten to be friends through all of the chaos that is surrounding us. <laughs> well, you know, it, it's funny, you know, there, there aren't that many people who actually understand exactly what we're talking about, except for the people who have gone through this stuff. So I've always uh, very, very much appreciated your work. And I wanted to have you on uh, for a few reasons, but um, first and foremost, this, uh, this Substack article, the the last, I believe, that you published, it might have been like a, maybe the next to last, this old time religion piece, um, which is something that I feel like more commentators and I wish more pundits and writers paid attention to, which is the constant influence of the evangelical right in American politics. Um, and and I, I wonder if you could go ahead and sort of set the stage for this conversation and kind of for people who maybe aren't as uh, versed in this as we are in, in this world that we have to swim around in. Can you sort of tell people about how the evangelical right has established themselves and basically more or less dominated the 20th century and now the beginnings of the 21st century? The, the piece that you're referring to I put out in response to an article that was in the New York Times and the Times had published you know, a, a really pretty decent piece in certain ways um, about how the new religious right had blended worship with politics. And the two authors were talking about how the sort of political rallies they'd gone to for Trump recently or QAnon rallies and anti-masking rallies had all taken on the air of a religious revival. And that the opposite is true as well. Many American churches have become deeply politicized. And so, so I read the article and, and I thought to myself, well, that's not new. And then I began going back in my own um, both academic work and my own personal experience and thinking about how what they had identified was obviously present um, ever since the sort of public rebirth of evangelicalism in the 1970s following the election of Jimmy Carter. And so, th so that's a really a primary concern or something I've been tracking for a really long time in looking at this interplay between conservative evangelical religion and the development of the, the right, political right, through the last decades of the 20th century and how that became so dominant in our, our culture. I'm kind of curious because Jimmy Carter would arguably be one of the most religious presidents we've ever had. And yet what you're describing is the rebirth of the evangelical movement. It comes out of a reaction to the most religious president we've ever uh, elected. Is that, is that safe to say? 
part of the story that I've been telling recently, and it comes out in the in, in Freeing Jesus, um, as well as some other work that I've been doing, is how in the 1970s, there was this really unusual kind of form of evangelicalism. It was uh, politically radical. It was very open. It gave birth to things like Sojourners magazine and a couple other things that are a little bit more insider that some evangelicals would know, a publication called The Other Side, Evangelicals for Social Action, Evangelical Feminism, you know, some, some things you don't associate with evangelicalism, especially today. And so it, it just so happened that I was a college student at an evangelical college in the middle of the 1970s. And this is the kind of evangelicalism I knew, uh, edgy, radical, interested in liberation, theology, uh, very politically progressive. And those are the evangelicals who elected Jimmy Carter, a Democrat who had, who, who had a lot of these kinds of things sort of at least woven into his, uh, his political views, like his views on women, for example, were for the middle of the 1970s, incredibly progressive for a white guy from Georgia, you know, and certainly his views on race as well. So there was this sort of anomalous period of American evangelicalism that I knew well as a teenager and a college student. But as the Carter years sort of began to uh, raise questions about the role of religion in public life. There were evangelicals, particularly in the South, who reacted over and against Carter. They didn't see him as being Christian. They didn't recognize what he was doing as in any way evangelical. And so they began to form really a counter movement um, to him. And that counter movement involved being counter racial reconciliation. It was a counter uh, women's rights. It was, it was more like the religious right that we know today. And so out of, out of the Carter presidency, you know, Jerry Falwell organizes the, the moral majority. And that begins a sort of a fight within evangelicalism and eventually the radical, I, I call it the golden tinged, uh, Jesus counterculture of California, um, <laughs> that that begins to fade from view. And it's the right wing form of evangelicalism that takes prominent place. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have even forgotten that there was ever such a thing as the kind of evangelicalism that it is associated with a person like Jim Wallace, who's still probably the most well-known proponent of that. Well, we care about accuracy on this podcast, so I just want to make a correction, which is that uh, President McKinley was the most religious president because God told him <laughs> to civilize the Philippines. I mean, God literally came down and told him it was his duty to civilize the Philippines. But joking aside, I, I, I do want to point out that that split that you're talking about, that schism around that time period, which Jerry Falwell, of course, I think best embodies, um, this is based on white supremacy. It's based on the idea of, of old Confederate religion, the idea that God has minted the white race, particularly the American white male, in order to dominate the world. And I, I want to ask you about this. 
Falwell and the people around him um, were so effective in dominating American politics and culture that most people do not understand that there is a progressive reform minded evangelicalism that even exists to this day. It, it's considered such a small little group that it's the, the, the very term evangelical is synonymous with this white supremacist project. Can you talk about how that happened? Well, it happened in the way that a lot of things happen in evangelicalism is that there was an internal argument um, in their churches and in the institutions, particularly theological seminaries and colleges. And so there were through the 80s and 90s in particular, a series of what you might want to call internal crusades in these institutions to limit the power and the voice of evangelicals that might be more progressive and to forward the more conservative agendas. And um, I know because I was the victim of one of those crusades myself, I got fired from an evangelical college. Um, and I, I was a very strong proponent of women's rights and also standing up for the students of color and LBGTQ students on the campus that I happened to work. And that did not endear me uh, to the trustees or the powers that be. Can, can I ask on, on that? Because that's really fascinating. How was that communicated to you? What was the, the conversation that, that, that led to that? Well, there's some of it that I, I can't uh, share publicly for legal reasons, but the, the basics of it, and, and this would be part of a public record, is that I was literally told that I didn't fit, quote unquote. And uh, so that meant I was not going to get tenure and I was, I was let go, but it became a, a fair, it was at the time, and this was before the internet, a fairly well-known case in some evangelical circles. It got, it got covered in Christianity Today. It was picked up by the Los Angeles Times. There were student protests at the college where I worked in order to try to keep me on the faculty. Um, but that the critics, the criticism of the, the institution's moves to get rid of me uh, didn't have any impact. Um, they just went ahead and they said, no, you know, you're out of here. And so, so that was in the early 90s that that happened. I was in my early 30s and it was my first ever academic job. It was very, very hard um, to be a woman right out of graduate school, going with all kinds of idealism about your work and about what uh, teaching in colleges is like. And then to find oneself on the, the short end of what was at that point in time, I think a real consolidation of conservative evangelical power in right-wing institutions. And I wasn't the only one. There was a really interesting book written in the late 90s uh, by a scholar named Julie Ingersoll, who does a lot of work on the religious right. And um, her th that little book was called Evangelical Christian Women. I think the subtitle was uh, Stories from the Battlefield or something to that effect. And it was a whole book um, about women who were dismissed, gotten rid of, um, and otherwise removed from positions of power within evangelicalism at that time in the, in the early nineties. And so, so it was, it was clearly a, a more national kind of move, um, against per, particularly progressive women. And I don't know so much about, uh, people of color at that point, in part, because there just weren't a whole lot 
people of color who had any kinds of positions of power at evangelical institutions. But there were women coming to the fore uh, then, and that's the wave I got caught up in. And then I had to, you know, remake, remake a life on the other side of that. But since I was victimized by all of this, it made me pay attention to it more. Um, and, uh, in effect, a, a big part of my career in my life has been shaped in the, by the questions that arose then. Is there a percentage you can put on what, uh, how much it was of your gender versus how much of it was on your, the progressive ideas that you held in terms of why they made that decision? It was very hard to separate. Um, yeah. And uh, there were... There were few people at the college who were men who would have been quite as theologically or maybe politically progressive as I was. I can think of maybe two or three. And um, they did not wind up staying there over the longer haul. So there was certainly some theological uh, concern. Uh, that was functioning there. But it was also the fact that I was one of, I believe at the time, I think there were six women maybe who were on tenure track out of a faculty of 120 people. So I'm curious, this is in the nineties. Is that what you said? Yes. This is in the early mid nineties. So the context here is that we've already gone through like the women's liberation movement. Like women have been a strong part of the workforce. They've, they've, they'd won, right? This argument had already been won at this point, I would say by the nineties. So is that, is it shocking? I wonder if anyone listening to this would be shocked to hear that like at that late date, you're going to start suddenly encounter a whole new wave. I mean, tell me if I'm correct in describing this. It's like a whole new wave of, of uh, a certain position women need to have and where they need to be. You know, I mean, I don't know if we want to get into like only in the home- homemakers not working, whatever, but that's sort of what, what we're, I'm getting from what you're describing. Well, I mean, that's what J.D. Vance is doing right now in, in terms of talking about trying to bring back traditional jobs. It's the idea that women shouldn't have to work right? Which basically is just opening the door for putting women back into the the home, correct? Yeah, I think that's, this is a really interesting question, because I I don't often think about it, but I, but I am convinced this is true. And I think it will be of interest to your listeners. And in the 1990s, when all this was happening to me, as far as I have been able to trace down, and my, my uh, PhD is in American religious history. And I had uh, my area of expertise was the study of fundamentalism in America. So, so I have pretty good resources and research skills <laughs> in this area. But um, as far as I have been able to track down, I was actually the first ever woman hired by any evangelical college in America to teach in a religious studies department a subject other than Christian education or women's studies. And so when I walked it on into my job um, in the, in that, you know, what it was at 91, I was the first ever woman to teach doctrine and church history at any evangelical college. And that includes places like Wheaton college, you know, much better known uh, school than the place where I was and, and the whole body of colleges that serve uh, evangelicalism. And to your question, Nick, what that means is that evangelical culture was about 20 years behind 
those same fights within secular culture. And that's the point that I want to underscore. It's not a critique necessarily of the place where I worked. It's just to point out that um, there's this historical kind of lag period because evangelicalism, while it was engaged in the culture, and we tend to think of it as very, very much part of the culture, also does have certain kinds of lags around uh, certain social issues. And I think those are the social issues that uh, that Jared pointed out at the very beginning of this. Uh, there's a sort of a lag in understanding uh, dimensions of race, racism, white supremacy, and, and all of those issues. Um, and then there are certainly a lag related to gender issues. And it, it, it could be, per- it's purposeful, I think, in certain ways, you know, because they are committed very deeply to a hierarchical structure of society where certain people should have power and other people should not. And so if you're holding on to that idea of society as a hierarchy of authority, um, you're going to be outside of certain kinds of conversations going on about human rights. And so by the time the 90s come, and you know this was an old argument within, say, liberal Protestant uh, colleges and seminaries, where they had plenty of women, plenty of female students, plenty of professors, plenty of administrators. It was not the case in the 1990s. It was all still very new. And um, I kind of think about that sometimes today when we're looking at evangelical responses to, say, critical race theory and um, some of the attitudes towards especially LGBTQ people, is that there's a theological almost shield that they built around their ideas about how God has ordered society that keeps them from addressing the same kinds of issues that many of the rest of us just sort of say, oh, that's interesting, or I'm willing to think about that, or yeah, maybe that hasn't been fair. But evangelicals haven't been doing that work for 20 years, like many of the rest of us. And so so then when they finally encounter it, it looks incredibly frightening and incredibly threatening. And that's when it gets sort of linked up into, I think, all their political views. And um, they're very good at politics. Yeah. And, and part of it, you know, one of the things I'm studying for the new book is the influence of apocalypticism in terms of conservative reactionary circles. And one of the things that they're able to do, particularly through Christianity, is to say, hey, listen, if we start letting gay people marry, if we start letting trans people live in society, if we do this, if, if, if women aren't controlled in the home, this is all leading to the apocalypse. This is all leading to a moment where Satan uh, succeeds, he wins over. Uh, and of course, we have Falwell, we have Robertson saying that things like 9-11 and hurricanes are caused by an angry God who does this. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that place of apocalypticism in terms of reactionary conservative evangelicalism, which serves, of course, to help the uh, the power and control of white, wealthy evangelical men versus a more sort of a social justice progressive type of Christianity. How does that idea of apocalypticism sort of fit into that different frame? In the, in the 1970s, when... Um, Evangelicalism, of course, was was coming out of its sort of political hibernation. Um, the main view of apocalypse that was present was the idea that the world was going to get worse and worse and worse. And that wasn't such a bad thing because the world getting worse meant that Jesus was going to be back really soon. And um, 
when Jesus returned, the, I, the, the notion that they held was that Jesus was going to rescue all of God's faithful people, um, all of the Christians who had accepted Jesus in their heart as their personal Lord and Savior, and that Jesus was going to take all those people in the rapture up to heaven and keep those people safe uh, while the world suffered through a terrible uh, tribulation of violence and famine and war and the whole thing for seven years. And at the end of that seven-year period, Jesus would return with all the raptured people and with all the angels of heaven and with everybody who was a saint who had died before and uh, meet up with Satan's forces on a battlefield in a place called Armageddon in the Holy Land. And that Jesus would then, with all these forces that Jesus had marshaled, defeat evil for 1000 years and set up the kingdom of God on earth. So, you know, it's amazing that I can still do that. <laughs> I was right there with you. I was right there with you the entire way. I heard, I heard the old pastor in my head. I'm right there. <laughs> it's good to know I can still preach a sermon like that. Um, but of course, women can't ever preach a sermon like that in those circles. Um, so, so that was the view then. And, it, and, it, and you're younger than I am. So as we know, that kind of had residual power um, in evangelicalism through a couple of decades in, that followed the 70s. But along the way, it began to shift. And evangelicals began to think, well, maybe we're not going to get rescued out of this mess. Uh, maybe the apocalypse, in a sense, or the tribulation has already in some fashion begun. And that our job is to uh, you know, kind of fight it for as long as possible. So more and more people can become Christian and then, you know, God will just all sort it out at the end. And so there's, there are kind of mixed, more mixed views on the apocalypse right now. Uh, but you hear highly apocalyptic language um, when you see some of these figures in the religious right. Uh, I'm thinking about that pastor, uh, is it down in Tennessee, outside of Nashville, I, whose name, I know you know his name. Osteen, is that who you're talking about? No, no. it's a Patriot Church fella. Oh. Yeah, the, the Patriot Church guy. And then Greg Locke, who also is down that same area. Um, they get up and they start preaching essentially about how completely evil and completely corrupt uh, that the really the democratic party is i mean they're speaking in apocalyptic terms regarding joe biden who i really kind of never fancied as the antichrist you know i mean he just doesn't have the he just doesn't have the chops to be the antichrist as far as uh, some of the stuff i learned in evangelicalism but that's what they're doing and so there's there is some sort of apocalyptic um fear um right now that the worst has already begun. And so they, they have a calling um, from God to try to defeat evil and Satan. And uh, the harder they fight, um, you know, the more people, I guess, who, who will get saved, uh, who will eventually uh, go to heaven and the more, you know, the evildoers will be punished. So there's a sense in which they've kind of moved Armageddon into our everyday life. And that. I find worrisome 
because it was one thing when they thought that the world was just going to get worse and worse and worse, and you don't really have anything to do about it. You just kind of wait for Jesus to return. Um, but now it's like, well, you have to politically uh, jump into the arena and defeat Satan. And that, and that is a huge mobilizing force in their political outlook right now. Well, you know, I, you, you mentioned that you uh, you studied the history of evangelicalism and also as it, it relates to politics. I'm curious if you have a perspective on uh, the founding fathers wanted to have a separation of church and state. And I have to imagine that this was the reason they recognized it even back then. And do you have a, a, any insight into how that what, why they would have come up with that notion in you know, the 1700s? Yeah, there was a bit of an argument as to the separation of church and state. And, it, you know, originally that phrase comes from a gloss um, that Thomas uh, Jefferson wrote on some issues that developed um, around the Constitutional Convention. But, uh, you know, the, the intent, I think, was pretty clear is that the founders were, despite the evangelical propaganda to the contrary, a, a fairly secular bunch. Um, and uh, when they weren't, you know, they were secular in the terms of the 18th century. And they were also very liberal uh, theologically. So they were deists. And that meant that they were a little concerned with uh, these kinds of religious movements that could develop this way. And they were familiar with them. There were apocalyptic movements among the Puritans. There were people who were religious extremists among the Patriots, um, but the founders weren't. And so they were hesitant about extremist religious movements. And they were also very hesitant of any kind of state religion uh, because they had just been basically, you know, victimized by a state religion, even though 18th century Anglicanism might not seem so terribly harmful in the rear view. Um, the idea of having a church state marriage where both the church and the king uh, were sort of opposed to your rights um, and were, you know, heaping abuse on you, uh, they thought was just generally a bad idea. So they came up with these, these mechanisms to make sure that no religion would ever be established, that there would be kind of a, a, a more uh, mealy argumentative environment for religious competition. And then separation of church and state developed out of that. Well, and, and part of it is of course, that in Europe, the Protestants and the Catholics were just absolutely committing genocide against one another. And it was tearing mm -hmm. Europe apart. And I, 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 I wanted to ask you about this, Diana, because this is something that I've been keeping an eye on. And it's very, very strange. Speaking of that schism between Protestants and Catholics, one of the things that's happening in America right now is this growing authoritarian movement that is both taking place in these patriot churches, which are Protestant churches, white evangelical churches. But a lot of the ideology that we're seeing is from this new right Catholic wave. Uh, we're seeing a lot of people uh, that are sort of starting to convert to Catholicism and starting to pick up some authoritarian tendencies. I mean, you're seeing this from people like Steve Bannon, Rod Dreher. I was wondering if you could talk about how this might be the one thing that gets these people together in the same room is the idea that democracy and ascendant populations are dangerous. But can you talk about where these two sort of groups are starting to come together? It's actually three groups. It's um, the, the kinds of evangelicals who love Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. It's those Catholics who hate Pope Francis. Yeah. 
And it is the Eastern Orthodox right. who love Putin. Yep. And those three groups, what they share in common is this profound commitment that society, Western society is decadent and chaotic. And that that's revealed by things like feminism, uh, LGBTQ rights, and racial mixing, frankly. Um, and that the solution is a return of order uh, and the rightful authority of white men, and then to restructure society so that everything has its place and everyone is in its place. And that means that sin and lawlessness basically come from the same source, that getting out of your place, getting uh, going beyond your station, getting messing up the order of things. And so um, it's, it's not entirely hard to see why evangelicals would be so enamored. Evangelicals with that kind of orderly hierarchical worldview would be so enamored of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, because evangelicalism at its heart is uh, not, uh, they've, they've glommed on to this hierarchical thing, uh, but it's all, at its best, it's usually a movement of uh, democratic enthusiasm. <laughs> That's often what it has been in American history, where, where women preach and slaves are set free and, you know, abolition and, and women's rights have been supported. Evangelicalism has kind of an interesting history of being on the side of democratic movements and the, and the voice of the people. But uh, that hasn't been the case since the 70s. Um, but you can see why evangelicals who have become just committed to hierarchy love hierarchical churches. And they love the conservative right-wing movements in hierarchical churches and don't understand that there are other forms of Catholicism and orthodoxy that are um, you know, fighting against uh, that kind of re-traditionalization uh, or rehierarchicalization of their own traditions. And, and there are huge portions of global Catholicism and global orthodoxy that have been moving in much more open directions towards um, passion for uh, climate justice, uh, real engagement in issues around poverty and economic inequality, uh, even the most uh, sort of uh, hidebound of these uh, groups are rethinking how they understand the role of women in their systems and structures. And all of them are asking serious questions about, um, about gay, lesbian, transgender people. And so, so you find, find in all three of these groups, in Protestantism, uh, Catholicism, and Orthodoxy, uh, people that, you know, frankly, I would be and am thrilled to be associated with and are on the front edges of trying to think about how to live in a better, more peaceful, more inclusive, more pluralistic global environment. And then you find these other forms of them, uh, these same groups that are fighting sort of on two fronts. One, they're fighting whom they perceive to be liberal within their own denominations and their own traditions. Um, and they're also, this is the really, I mean, this is your bailiwick, Jared. Uh, they're also coalescing together to sort of mount a global campaign um, against Western decadence wherever it is found. And so, you know, I mean, it makes, it puts some really interesting 
light on what's going on in Ukraine. All right. And we've been lucky enough to be hanging out with Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, one of my favorite religious commentators and favorite people out there on the internets. Uh, check out her Substack and of course her book, Freeing Jesus. Uh, Dr. Bass, where can the good people find you? Uh, folks can find me via my website, which is just my name. I'm a person and a website, dianabutlerbass.com. Uh, I, I love writing uh, my Substack. It's called The Cottage, and I invite anyone and everyone to sign up and, and join in. And I think folks can find me um, mostly on Twitter. That's the main social media place where I hang out. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, we are back. Dr. Diana Butler Bass, uh, really, really uh, good guest. I got to tell you, it is it's hard to find people who understand evangelical culture and the intersection of politics. I've been always, always welcome on the show. Well, it, it kind of really makes a lot of sense with what we're seeing. Uh, you know, the evangelicals trying to control like public schools, for instance, yep. and what's being taught. Because again, this is where it has to start. You can't get to you know as an adult to that ideology unless you're born. I would imagine, right? You have to be raised. No one's converting to that as a 30 year old right like jared like no one's going to come to that I, you know some people are starting to but it's it's in large part because of what what diana and i were talking about there at the end which is this new sort of um fascination with authoritarianism within the converted catholics which is this weird thing that's starting to take off and and i was glad she brought up the opposition to uh, the pope which has all of a sudden created this new sort of harbor for people who like are like authoritarian plus also anti-progress within the church. Like it's a really weird thing that's happening. Right. I mean, but we've seen that for a while now as each different pope has come a little bit inched, right? A little bit progressive, it, right? It just seems like... <laughs> well, save for the Nazi pope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Except for him. Um, but it almost seems like... You know, they, 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 you know, some people might be progressive. They might be that way, but they can't have the Pope do that. No way. The Pope, that's got to stay sacred, right? We got to keep that anchored in a certain way, I guess. It, it's really, really strange to me how, you know, I, but let me get to the actual the point I was going to make was like, I have deep respect for anyone that wants to dedicate their lives to, you know, studying the, the Bible or studying, you know, religion and, and, and living that a life. I mean, as long as they are truly living the life that's laid out there and the good stuff of the Bible, at least. So it's like, I don't want to necessarily, you know, instantly make a uh, judgment on someone who decides to live their life that way. But um, it's really just troubling because you're right. It becomes this rapture uh, and, and so extreme. And then it becomes a thing where they feel that they, they, they're called to have to actually get involved in politics for this. And then that's that's just... You know, again, the founding fathers, I think, understood this and then somehow didn't we couldn't keep that separate. <laughs> well, that was intentional for sure. I okay. mean, faith is not a bad thing. I mean, like, let's, just, let's be frank. I have faith in you. We're going to get on. We're going to talk about serious things. We know when we're going to do it. We meet when we say we're going to meet. And you take me in good faith. I take you in good faith. I have faith in our listeners. I have faith in the, the my friends, my family, my loved ones. Though that's important stuff, and it's important for how I view the world, and quite frankly, how I survive the world. Right. You know what I mean? It, it, and particularly in tough times. But when you start saying your faith is not enough, you have to start imprinting it on others. You want to go back to the founding of liberalism. Liberalism says that you are a person, I am a person, the law comes between both of you and protects both of you from one or the other infringing upon you. 
all of a sudden you start talking about my faith overrides whatever you believe. I mean, that's that's literal fascism. I mean, that's that's literal totalitarianism. And these people have gotten on board for it for not just political power, but also their own personal profit, but also because they want the world to work the way they want it to work. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried that you know the notion of um, you know churches becoming more and more political. There, there's some sort of monetary reward for that, and I'm worried that that, sure. if that really is true or not. I mean, I know that they were trying to change the laws where you can now be more political in churches after LBJ had the law. For, my mind's blanking, but you know that there was a law, but I like, was supposed to keep it separate. Um, but uh, but yeah, it, it would really be soul killing if like all of a sudden it came out that yes, like obviously these churches are doing this primarily because they're going to increase their revenues by a lot. It's, you know, I mean, I, I know it's, it makes sense that there is to some degree, but like let's just pretend it was like a, a one for one. We haven't seen evidence of that necessarily, right? Like like where I don't know. Take it. Take a drive down the road and look at one of the mega churches anywhere in America. I mean, Jared Falwell. It just can't. Uh, by the way, I can't recommend this enough more than i possibly can uh jerry falwell jr who by the way got totally busted for whatever it is i we don't have to call we don't have to label whatever jerry falwell jr is into it's really fun to hang out with jared whatever whatever he's into good luck to him i hope he finds peace he did an interview about it not too long ago and he basically said my dad was a complete nutter fraud and he did it for the money and he did it for the power which is one of the reasons i mean Reaganism happened the way that it is and why we live in America the way that we do. But, man, I, I, if you've ever listened to, like, an Alex Jones, he's like, globalist, coming to your house tomorrow unless you buy dick pills. <laughs> and, like, the next thing you know, you're buying dick pills. Yeah. And that that exact same economic model is being done in churches, which is New World Order is coming to your door. you you got to give to the church. We're under attack. It is an incredibly lucrative thing, which the Republicans do, aggrievement, victim uh, uh, politics that, and, and, and fundraising. That's exactly what's going wow. on. Yeah, now I feel seen because now like, that's what I do on my, on my other side. When I do these ads, I say, you know, if you don't want to get traded by your favorite team, you better use Manscaped. You know, like, so <laughs> I guess I'm in that boat. Yeah, I get but it. You're not, you're not telling people that you... The, <laughs> That the president is a reptilian New World Order agent, and so you need to buy dick pills. I you mean, know, you, you're not doing that. I know, and I'm not doing as well as Alex Jones either. That's right. <laughs> so go figure. That's right. Maybe you can tell everybody the reptilians are coming for you. The New World Order is knocking down your door. Come and get you some of those sweet, sweet dick pills. <laughs> we got to end on that, though. You got to end on that. Uh, thank you again to Dr. Diana Butler-Bass, uh, one of my favorite people out there. Thank you for listening. A reminder, if you want access to the additional show every week that comes out on Friday, the Weekender Edition, you got to go over to patreon.com slash muckrakepodcast. Uh, this show does not advertise dick pills. No we, male enhancement. No, we're not doing that. We're not uh, we're, we're not asking you to purchase anything. Uh, we, we want to remain editorially independent. So we depend on you. And we're so, so grateful for you. Again, that's patreon.com slash muckrake podcast. You get the weekender edition. We do live shows. You, you have access to our discord, which is where the good people hang out. But until then, you can find Nick. At can you hear me? SMH. You can find me at JY Sexton. Until next time, everybody. Stay safe.